why are you so weird? Anybody ever asked you that question? And what's your answer? Do you think that we're born a little bit quirky? Or does life make us that way, one strange experience at a time? And what counts as strange anyway? UFOs? Ghosts? Spotting Sasquatch? How about murder? When I was a kid, we had a neighbor who snapped one unbearably sticky August afternoon and attacked his co-workers. With his pocket knife, he stabbed one of them to death and wounded two others. This was a big news story at the time, probably because he worked for the Philadelphia Inquirer in the mailroom. The Philadelphia Inquirer is like the paper of record for Philly. And he'd been employed by the newspaper for 28 years. There'd never been any incidents or conflicts and all that time that set up any red flags. He was literally every cliche. He was quiet. He kept to himself. He was mostly mild-mannered, although some co-workers said he could be a hothead if you ticked him off. He was a hard-working family man. And I knew that that last part was true for sure. He and his family lived four houses down from my grandparents, a completely average street in a post-war blue-collar suburb in New Jersey. It was a suburb that had been built for... Um, all of the, the people, all of the men mostly, that were stationed at the U.S. Naval Shipyard in Philadelphia, they needed a place to live, right, post-World War II. And so this suburb on the Jersey side of the Delaware River sprang up, and, and that's primarily the people who lived there. And this particular family, they had kids, there were four kids, and the youngest was a friend of my little brother's. And they had this huge in-ground swimming pool in their backyard. It was huge. It took up the whole yard. And they were incredibly generous to all of the kids in the neighborhood. We were always welcome to come and swim. Now, this was back in the day when um, people didn't worry so much about liability or whatnot. Because we were invited to come swim whether they were at home or not, whether they were in the pool or not. We, there were just a couple of rules. You had to close the gate after you came in and you had to take any trash that you made with you. For a kid, is that not as awesome as it gets, Max? Like, is that not the greatest possible scenario Absolutely, you can imagine? Yeah. A free indoor in-ground pool, a couple doors down. So this man was one of the dads that you didn't see around much. Now, unlike my own dad, he had a real job. It was a union job at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Some days he'd come home from work and he'd park his car and he'd push through the gate of this big high wooden fence that surrounded the swimming pool. And he was always wearing the same clothes, so maybe it was a uniform. And my memory of him is a man who was kind of like folded in on himself, you know, kind of small and tired. And he'd stand there watching these kids, sometimes his own, and sometimes it was just neighbor kids splashing around in his pool. And he'd say something like, you kids having fun? Or he'd say, good day to be in the water. Something like that, right? Something completely innocuous. He never got in the pool with us. 
I never knew him to so much as put a foot in that swimming pool. It was like they built it and he paid for it and that was where it ended. And you know how it is when you're a kid, how your friend's parents seem, especially the dads, and maybe especially the dads back then. They were side characters who made an occasional cameo appearance in your life, right? Best case scenario, you'd get one of those dads that would like pull a quarter out of your ear. But more typically, they'd be yelling about the noise. I'm Gen X. We completely missed out on the father knows best kinds of dads. And we were way too early for the super involved millennial dads that followed. Other people's dads for us were background. They just weren't anything that we paid that much attention to. And this dad, this man, he was that times a hundred. And his wife worked too, which was also kind of unusual. She was the head waitress at a 24-hour diner midway between Philly and Atlantic City. And I actually owe her a huge debt because she's the person who got me my very first restaurant job. And that opportunity and what I learned from her is what helped me pay my way through college. Plus, I babysat their first grandchild too. So I was around this family often and in a lot of different ways. But I never knew any of them. Not really. There was the giant swimming pool where I sent so many sunburnt, chlorinated afternoons. And there was their house, the same model and floor plan as my grandparents. But somehow, that was utterly alien to me. And I remember thinking that they were much older than the other parents. But I know now that that wasn't true. Memory can be the most untrustworthy thing sometimes. So when I say that their house always felt dark and heavily quiet, that the pool was the only place where there was any light or lightness, I could be wrong. I could be misremembering. I could be letting the things that happened later smear the memories of what came before. So yeah, memory is a tricky thing, right? Our memories are always kind of rewritten and overwritten by the things that happen later. But then I think, you know, I was a child of chaos. I was really sensitive to conflict because in my family, in my world, conflict meant that there was potential violence. And I was like a little animal, always scanning the environment for threats. And there was something about their house that I just did not like. The familiar layout should have been welcoming, but it wasn't. And that cool darkness, that should have been welcoming. There were no trees shading that swimming pool, and on sunny days, it was relentlessly hot and glaring. But it wasn't. There was a weight to the silence and a weight to the shadows. I didn't know anyone who kept both their blinds and their curtains so tightly closed. That house made me so uneasy that I never once stayed there to babysit. I can't remember now how exactly it was that we came to the arrangement that we did. But when I watched that sweet baby boy, their only grandchild, it was always at my grandparents' house. It was never theirs. I never, And I babysit that baby for a year. I never once stayed alone in their house. I'm being super careful to not use names in this story. It's something that I thought about a lot. I was surprised, you know, to find that my former neighbor is still alive, although his wife isn't. And I thought about what he'd done and what all the consequences were. And I asked myself, do you want to kick that sleeping dog? 
Do you want to risk causing fresh pain to this family that's already suffered so much? And what about the victim's family? The families of the men who'd survived his attack. His attack. I, I really struggled with what was the right thing to do? What was the ethical thing to do? Because this is a really hard story to unearth with just a Google search. You'd have to be pretty determined. Why is that? It wasn't easy hunting down the original news coverage for this because it all happened pre-internet and not every news story has been digitized. So the archives that hold this particular story are behind a paywall. You'd either need to be like one of these super internet sleuths, which I'm not, or a hacker, which I'm not, or have access to some pretty comprehensive microfiche to get your hands on the info, or you'd have to pay. And I knew exactly what I was looking for. I had names, I had dates, I had addresses, and I still had to jump through all of these really daunting hoops to get this information. And then I pulled up Google Earth and I studied the house where my former neighbor now lives. And he's old and he's probably frail and he's done his time. And I just don't know, you know? There are a lot of ethical conundrums around true crime. You know, a lot of exploitation of people that have been victimized. And and it's just a little bit of a minefield. You know what I'm saying, Max? Like, it's it's hard to know where the lines are, don't you find? Yeah, that's one of the it's one of the conundrums in dealing with that because you don't want to glorify it. And and also, like a lot of people were involved in this. All of his kids, his grandson, his wife, like pe- so many people suffered. The victims, their families, so many people suffered. And I, I just, I didn't know what to do. And a wise person told me once a long time ago that when you really are stuck and you don't know which decision is the right decision, it's it's okay to pause and wait for the answer to come. Just give it some time. And, and I paused and I waited. And honestly, I'm still waiting for the answer on this one. So I'm going to withhold the name for now. But I will tell you that it was surreal to finally see photographs of the newspapers that carried the story. It was so surreal to see his name and address and print. The address where we spent so many summer afternoons. And I'll tell you, it was shocking to see the gentleness and compassion shown to him by the court, the press, the community. I mean, he committed murder after all. He stabbed a coworker to death in the mailroom of a Philly newspaper. That is a close-up, frantic, awful, messy, wet kind of killing. It's a personal kind of killing. And it happened in Philly. I once saw a grandma punch a man right in the face at a hockey game. Philly is the last place I'd expect to see a killer treated with kindness. But I'm getting way ahead of the story. Workplace killings are pretty common now. School shootings are pretty common now. We've come a very long way in the wrong direction since that August afternoon when my neighbor plunged a knife into the gut of a man he'd known and worked with for years. Today, if that very same thing happened, you'd be horrified. You'd be heartbroken for the victims and their families. But what you wouldn't be is shocked. Shocked is what we were, though. Because that tired dad who insisted we enjoy his backyard pool... He killed a man at work today, and he did it with his own hands, with a pocket knife, and then he ran covered in another man's blood. There was a manhunt, 
that covered Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. It was all over the news. Now, it was a brief manhunt because he did eventually surrender in a clean shirt with a lawyer by his side. Try making sense of that. Like, I never could, and I still I still can't. You know, like when, when a neighborhood kid that you play with, when his dad commits cold-blooded foul murder like that, hmm, that takes some getting used to to get your mind wrapped around that. And I was already kind of an odd child when it happened, and it confirmed something that I already believed. This whole world is a wild card. I think when you have these kinds of experiences as a kid, you end up striking a very different sort of bargain with reality. Knowing that terrible things really can and do happen because terrible things are happening to you and around you, it makes you a little, I don't know, braver maybe about the other things that can and do and might happen. When the world breaks open and shows you that the real, real, real truth is chaos, colors and scribbles everywhere, everything's spilling outside the line, could that be the thing that makes you just a little bit weird? Or are we drawn to the strange, the mysterious, the bizarre, the unsettling, because we think that knowing about these kinds of things can protect us in some way? After all, the aliens might abduct me and experiment on me, but the joke's on you, alien commander. I always knew you were coming. It sounds crazy, and it makes you feel crazy. But being weird can be a phenomenal thing. Being weird, or to put a kinder and less judgy spin on it. <laughs> being a person who thinks and or lives outside the mainstream of thought, which makes it sound so much better than being a weirdo, right, Max? Being that kind of person has all sorts of benefits. Did you know that people who are a little bit weird who think outside the mainstream um, are better at creative problem solving? And people that are weird have the ability to see the world through multiple perspectives. Many of our most gifted artists and thinkers describe themselves as having been odd or peculiar children and as kind of different, you know, in those air quotes as adults. There was a book published in the mid-1990s by Dr. Anthony M. Ludwig called The Price of Greatness. So Dr. Ludwig is a psychologist and a professor at Brown University, and he looked at over a thousand people. Amelia Earhart, Marvin Gaye, John Lennon, Frida Kahlo, so many more. And he made the case in that book that creativity and creative thinking and weirdness tend to travel together. Now, doesn't it feel so good to be in such awesome company, right? And then there was another super interesting study out of the Johns Hopkins School of Business who found that people who feel like they don't belong, who are just a little bit like outside of the mainstream, a little bit out of step, those people have a huge advantage when it comes to creativity and innovation. And who wouldn't want that? Plus, have you tried belonging? It's exhausting. And I hate the clothes. And it's so hard to remember to not bring up UFOs and reincarnation and conversations. Oh, who can pull that off day in and day out? I mean, Max, don't you find it exhausting when you're in a room full of strangers and you're not allowed to talk about the things you're really interested in? And instead you have to talk about the weather and like, I don't know, taxes. Isn't that the worst? It is, yeah. And isn't dressing like a normal person? The clothes are just so tight and scratchy. Anyway back to my neighbor. 
So what happened in the mailroom of the Philadelphia Inquirer that day? What was the final straw? Something I've thought a lot about in all the years that have passed is, what was he thinking as he made his way through the toll booth on the Walt Whitman Bridge, as he parked his yellow VW Beetle and pocketed the keys? Was he ruminating on a past insult from that coworker, thinking of all the clever and cutting things he should have said? You know how we do, right? Or was he thinking about like that the grass needed cutting or that school was going to start soon and his kids needed new school clothes? Maybe he wasn't thinking about much of anything at all. The papers say that at around 1 a.m., because he was working the night shift, at around 1 a.m., he went berserk. That's the word they used, berserk. The papers say that the dispute was over working conditions, but my neighbor was the supervisor. So what happened? He was described by one coworker as a loner who, quote, talked to everyone but had no one in the mailroom you could consider a friend, end quote. I look back now with this sick feeling because I see how that could have been true of his whole life, you know? Yeah, he had a family, but they all seemed to exist in separate orbits from each other. And yeah, he was married, but again, there was just something so very separate about him, alone. He was there, but not. Maybe the thing that made me feel so uneasy in their house is that it really was haunted. And he was the ghost all along. The man that my neighbor killed had no children of his own. But here's a gut punch of a detail. The murdered man, only 44 years old when he was killed, loved to paint. His neighbors described his paintings as Disney-like and said that his great joy was to give the paintings he made to the kids in his neighborhood. And I never knew that until now. I never knew that this symmetry existed between the killer and the victim. Never knew that both men, each in his very different way, played such a good and kind part in the lives of the neighborhood kids. And it's so weird to think about it that way. And then came the part that I wasn't expecting at all, and that was leniency. One man died. Two other men were gravely injured. And for these crimes, my neighbor was sentenced to three to 15 years in prison. He got three to five years for the murder. Max, three to five years. The balance of his sentence was to be served concurrently for the assaults that wounded the other two victims. And that's it. The judge in the case then, in open court, urged the murdered man's widow to forgive his killer and told the defendant, quote, It's clear that you are not a criminal type. This violence was caused by an outburst that should not have ever happened. Okay, what? (laughs) Okay, what? I mean, yeah. I think we can all agree that this was for sure an outburst that should not have happened. And, And they also, the press also noted that the Philadelphia Inquirer fired him immediately after the incident. So I guess we live in much more savage times now because, hello, you should absolutely be fired for attacking your coworkers and killing one of them. And three to five years for murder, however impulsive and non-premeditated, kind of feels like a slap on the wrist. And as I was reading this news coverage from back in the day, I thought, oh my God, it's almost like Philly 
used to actually be the city of brotherly love, not just a slogan that we wear on the t-shirts, right? So weird. In fact, seeing how gently and compassionately the Philadelphia courts dealt with my neighbor is honestly one of the weirdest aspects of the whole case for me. Like, in what universe, Max, were you expecting to hear that? No. Mm-mm. Three to five years. So what happened next? Well, what always happens, because you know how it is. Humans are so good at moving on and forgetting. The kids grow up. The old ones die. People want and need to turn away from tragedy and sorrow and the knowledge that it really and truly can happen to you, to anyone. So that's what we all did. We turned away. The house with the giant in-ground pool was sold. And a new family eventually came and they played in that water, but we didn't. Not ever again. And every so often, one of us would say something like, Hey, remember when Mr. So-and-so snapped and attacked those guys at the Inquirer? And then we'd Google his name and we'd never be able to find much of anything. And somebody else would say, Oh, it's always the quiet ones. And everyone would laugh. And then we would look at each other. Because this quiet one wasn't a stranger. This quiet one was the dad down the street. And because we may have only been at the very farthest edge of his swimming pool, his actions created ripples that none of us could outswim. Not then and not now. Because when the world shows you what it really is and all of its incomprehensible strangeness and mystery and beauty and violence and coincidences that aren't coincidences at all, it leaves a mark. And I think if you're lucky, really, really lucky, the mark it leaves is going to make you just a little tiny bit weird. And that's a good thing. Next time on True Weird Stuff, it was just a regular day in the village until a couple of children wandered out of the woods dressed in clothing that no one had ever seen before, speaking a language no one had ever heard before. And the kids were bright green. True story? True story. Next time. True Weird Stuff is a Now Media production. Our executive producer is Anthony Garcia. The show is written and hosted by me, Sherry Lynch, along with my deeply weird director, Max Sweeten. Our equally odd producer is Carrie Bowser. Additional production by the mysterious Stephen Call. Our digital witch and social media cult leader is Heather Furr. Original graphics by Kevin Nash. Original artworks by Olivia Axlin. True weird original music composed and performed by Jack Griffin and Zane Nash. Copyright 2023 Now Media. All rights reserved. All wrongs remembered.